0: Just got done with the holidays and the craziness of it and traveling. My girlfriend graduated from Tulane University, so we actually had a road trip all the way back through New Orleans. So we drove from Utah um, through a sliver of Colorado, through all of New Mexico, through all of Texas, and then through the northern part of Louisiana, all the way down to the southern part of New Orleans. And We spent, you know, two days there and then we drove right back. So we did that right before Christmas and then we had Christmas, which was already, you know, busy and crazy. So it's nice. Like, it's not that I want to necessarily like get back into the grind. But then again, you kind of do, you know, it's nice to have the routine or to get back into kind of something that you're familiar with. And so here we are, you know, and I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back on After Credits. I'm glad to talk about the Iron Claw, which was a complete surprise and completely different than what I anticipated, so we'll get into that in a second. But, you know, as we dealt with the holidays and as we went through, you know, of course, Christmas, Christmas Eve, and and New Year's, you know, this thought crossed my mind, and this was actually pointed out by a friend of mine when we were at a, a holiday get-together, was kind of the question of, have holidays become completely transactional? You know, are, are, are all of the events transactional? You know, yes, gifts have been around for so long, but even, you know, when you're going to maybe a Christmas market or, you know, you're going to go see Christmas lights or you're gonna go get hot chocolate or whatever your Christmas event is, is that kind of I don't know, filled with sponsorships and transactional events and everything costs something and you're paying for something. Like is there any sort of nostalgia that comes with it? And I don't know. You know, I, I had this this thought that came through my head of that childhood nostalgia that I miss, you know, when you're a kid and you're so excited for Christmas because you don't, you just don't know what to anticipate, you know. You know there are going to be presents under the tree. You know you're going to get a stocking. There's an advent calendar that you've been following for 24 days, but as an adult, you know, with no kids, and you know, where does that come from? You know, I, I'm 27 years old. I don't feel that nostalgia like I used to, and for me, it does come through film, and so. I do think my saving grace in this world of transactional events, it's come through, it's a wonderful life, you know, and I know this is a very popular Christmas film, I'm not saying anything new, but at the same time, when you watch this film, specifically in my position, you know, being in a relationship, but no kids, and we're, we're out of the phase where we don't have kids around us even, you know, we don't have a lot of nieces and nephews to maybe spend a lot of time with, or to kind of help in that Christmas sense and so for me sitting down grabbing you know maybe a cocktail or like a you know spiked eggnog or something and watching It's a Wonderful Life with kind of that charm from 1947 of James Stewart and a beautiful message a beautiful film that kind of puts a spin on meaning it puts a spin on kind of the genuine nature of human beings during a very transactional period that gave me the holiday spirit, that gave me that nostalgia, so very grateful for that. Grateful for the holidays, it was a great time, but yeah, happy to be back. So let's get into some movie news. Um, my movie news for this round, I decided to go with the award season, because it's here, it's right around the corner. We, we are about to unload in the film award season, and let alone any other awards ceremony that's gonna take place. So I listed out some of the major awards that are taking place, when they're happening, and I'll kind of share what they mean and how, you know, because I'm sure if you're like me and let alone anybody else who sees probably 50 different awards, you're probably wondering, hey, why are there 50 to 100 to 200 film awards and music awards and Broadway awards, you know, any any sort of award ceremony, because it can get overwhelming. And it's almost like, what, what's the necessity around it? So I grabbed some of the major ones. I want to emphasize there are many, many more awards but I wanna go through this list. So on January 7th, that's actually right around the corner, we have the Golden Globes, which this is voted on by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Uh, they used to have 105 members, now they have 310. And I believe I heard word that this might be changing. This might not be the group who's, who's actually voting on this, but we'll find out soon enough. Um, this is probably the second most publicized film award show behind the Oscars. And this is where, you know, the talent, you know, whether it's actors, whether it's, um, you know, directors, filmmakers, even people in TV, um, they're rewarded for both film and television. So this is where, you know, you essentially get the drama category, you get the comedy category, and then you pick the best of the best, best films, best acting. And it's it's a fun show. You know, I think it's a little bit more uh, joke oriented, a little bit more loose, uh, a little bit more human. You know, there's not this like you have to be prestigious type vibe that goes in with the Golden Globes. So I've enjoyed it. I think they're fun. Uh, Last year was a little so-so, but at the same time, you know, we don't really know with TV deals how big everything's gonna be. But I believe the Golden Globes will be on CBS and Paramount Plus. So something to keep an eye on. January 7th, the Golden Globes. On the 15th, so the very next week, we have the Emmy Awards. Uh, This is pretty much equal to the Oscars for television. So instead of film, this is going to highlight everything in television. And these awards are voted on by the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. And members vote within their own categories. So for example, actors vote for actors, writers vote for writers, directors for directors, and so on and so forth. And that I really enjoy. I mean, it makes it a little bit less uh, political and a little bit more... I don't know, I guess talent oriented. I, I think if talent is voting for talent that they understand, you know, they know the hardships, they know the complications, they know the difficulties that come with it. Um, that's, I, I think that's a really good choice. And the Emmys are great. And they're a little bit kind of like prolonged, meaning they kind of end up being like almost a year after all of the, the projects have come out. So it's, it's always a weird place, but those are always enjoyable. So those are on the 15th of January. And then on February 18th, we have the BAFTA Film Awards. So this is held by the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. It's also voted on by the BAFTA Academy. And this celebrates the best of British and global film and television. So really good award ceremony. I think if you're going to watch the BAFTA Film Awards, this gives a little hint because this takes place before the Oscars, as does, you know, at all of these award shows that I've mentioned. But this gives a hint to what we might be seeing at the Oscars when it comes to best picture, when it comes to best actor, when it comes to best uh, screenplay. I, I think this is a really good kind of cornerstone to the awards ceremonies, but I've never personally watched these. I don't even know if they're televised or where they're televised, but that's one to keep in mind just to kind of keep an eye on, hey, what could be winning at the Oscars? On the 24th of February, we have the SAG Awards. So this is held by the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. If you remember the Actors strike, that's exactly who this is held by. Voted by actors, writers, performers. Um, every year, 2,200 active members are selected to vote for the nominees. And what's cool about that, which I did not know... Is these members will be rotated out for at least eight years afterward. So you're always getting somebody new voting for everything, which is nice because once again, if you want to remove that political nature or that political blanket, then you gotta do something like this. You gotta rotate people out. There can't be any any political bias or anything similar. So the SAG Awards are fun strictly because they are performers voting for performers, and that's all it is, rather than any sort of community like the Hollywood Foreign Press or even the Academy for the Oscars these are performers and that kind of bridges the gap between uh maybe consumers you know people who like watching it they can kind of respect the artist on the other side so and then last but not least we do have the Oscars uh the Academy Awards on March 10th so this will be voted on by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences there are over 10,000 members I believe there are 9,500 members who actually vote, and then many of these members are Oscar nominees. So through past, you know, decades and you know, different groups who have been nominated for different Oscars, they are a part of the Academy. Uh, Famously, Will Smith was removed from the Academy of Motion Arts and Sciences, uh, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and. He has a 10-year band, I believe it is. So he was one of those members. I'm sure many of the actors and the directors and the different talents around us that we enjoy seeing, I imagine they're probably a part of this group. So March 10th, the Oscars. Um, February 24th, the SAG Awards. February 18th, the BAFTA Awards. January 15th, the Primetime Emmy Awards. And then on the 7th, the Golden Globes. So just to keep an eye out, you know, if you want to kind of Go to awards show, or I shouldn't say go to one. I mean, that would be cool. But if you want to watch an award show, I always think it's fun. You know, I think it's just like the Super Bowl. Let's be honest. A lot of people watch the Super Bowl without any interest in football in the slightest, but you typically watch it for the commercials, right? That's like what makes it fun is you're saying, hey, what kind of commercials are out there? What celebrities am I going to see in these commercials? And I think the same pretty much applies just in a different sense when it comes to award shows. I would say, Look at the nominees for any award show. Just pick a winner. Pick somebody that you like, and then as you're watching it, that will allow you to feel like you have some sort of foot in the game, right? So if somebody's coming up and announcing something, you can say, hey, how many did I get right? You can even guess just based on what you believe they're going to pick rather than your own personal pick. So it makes it fun. You can make a game out of it. You can make an event with friends or family members, and I think it's very enjoyable. Let's get into the Iron Claw. I don't know if you want to say it's a big film. I will say it's another A24 product, which we'll get to in a second. I don't know how I want to introduce this. I don't want to give anything away just yet. So let's get into the synopsis. So the synopsis says, the true story of the inseparable Von Erich brothers who make history in the intensively competitive world of professional wrestling in the early 1980s. Through tragedy and triumph, under the shadow of their domineering father and coach, The brothers seek larger-than-life immortality on the biggest stage in sports. So this is directed by Sean Durkin, who has only really directed The Nest as well as Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. I have not seen either of those films. I don't know his style or his taste. So this is my first experience with Sean Durkin. This film stars Zac Efron. Uh, For anybody who doesn't know names, obviously I think most people will know who Zac Efron is. But it also stars Jeremy Allen White, who is best known for The Bear and Shameless. Um, he's having quite a year. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. Harris Dickinson, who's also having a major, um, uh, I should say, a massive year. Triangle of Sadness, Where the Crawdads Sing, uh, The Kingsman. Also Lily James from Cinderella, Baby Driver, Pam and Tommy. Uh, she played Pamela Anderson in that, that Hulu TV series, which was really good. And then Mara Tierney, who's best known from ER. Uh, I believe starred in like 189 episodes. Uh, Played the mom in Beautiful Boy, a very, very good role, a very heartfelt movie. And then also Liar, Liar and Insomnia. So quite a range of different, you know, you have a Christopher Nolan Insomnia film, and then you have a a Jim Carrey Liar, Liar film. And then you have a Timothy Chalamet, very dark, you know, I I shouldn't say dark, but deeply emotional, beautiful boy. So kind of a range of uh, filmography for Mara Tierney. And then you have Holt McColony, who was in Mindhunter, Fight Club, Shot Caller. Uh, he's in quite a bit. I believe he has over 89 acting credits. He's really, really good. So, this film is rated R. It has a two it has a runtime of two hours and 12 minutes. There will be spoilers. This is going to be a spoiler-filled episode. However, I will do my best not to spoil it. So, I guess it's kind of a trying that's me trying to have uh, have my cake and eat it too you know i'm trying to not give spoilers but then again i'm going to just warn you that i might slip up every now and then because uh this movie's it's it's hard not to dig into what happened so i'm just going to say this right off the bat i like this movie a lot this is such a thought provoking character driven film you know there's there's quite a bit of characters to focus on but they don't make it difficult they don't make it inseparable like they are they don't make it separate like the the synopsis says, these characters are inseparable. They're typically close together. They're in a lot of scenes together. Um, there's a good mixture between wrestling and kind of figuring out the art of that and their journey in that world, but also the journey of humanity as a family and also as human beings with a lot of pressure on their shoulders, a lot of kind of anticipation and anxiety for what's expected of them. So I believe sports movies are better when the sport is secondary to the humanity of the story. Now, there are plenty of these out there, but I think a a common one to think back on is Rocky 1. And I specifically say Rocky 1 because after Rocky 1, the the storyline kind of becomes more boxing-oriented or more legacy-oriented, whereas Rocky 1 is very much about the humanity of Rocky. You know, he's stuck in the trenches. He doesn't know what he wants to do. He's kind of this gangster that doesn't know what, what area of expertise he can dive into, but he's a good human being. He knows that he has a lot of good values and good traits that he wants to emphasize on and really kind of change, you know? He doesn't want to be known as this thug. He wants to be known as a good guy. He has, you know, there's a deep infatuation and love for Adrian, but she's very different from the type of person he is. So it creates this very natural, I don't know, this natural story around a boxer. But it is a boxing movie, so it's secondary in that sense. You know, so the humanity comes first. Um, I've seen this in radio um, recently. I also watched Remember the Titans during Thanksgiving time, and I think that's another good one. So I think anytime sports movies can really kind of put the sports second, it's complementary to the sense of being a human being. I think that's a that's a good side. So I saw that in this film. That was very much like wrestling. If you're into wrestling, great. I think you're going to love this. If you're not into wrestling, I don't think that's going to matter because it's not really about wrestling. That's just kind of a byproduct of what these characters are trying to achieve. On that same note, (laughs) let's break down the sport of pro wrestling. Because if you're like me, which you don't have to lie to yourself. There are many people out there, myself included, that just don't know pro wrestling. Like I don't get how it works. I I've been, you know, around the WWE. I've never been to an event. I think that might be fun, but there's just this—I don't know—this weird separation between wrestling in like high school or college, and then pro wrestling. You know, I like to try to attach those two together, but they're—they're they're just innately different. So, but first things first. Pro wrestling is deliberately unregulated. This allows owners to classify the shows as entertainment rather than a competitive sport. Which is good to know. If you're ever going to a wrestling event, a pro wrestling event, I should say, or even have any interest in watching it on TV, I think going into it understanding this is entertainment. This is like going to a movie rather than going to an NFL football game or an NBA basketball game or, you know, an NHL hockey game. I think that will make the expectation kind of, it'll just kind of switch it up. It'll provide a little bit better of an experience rather than you thinking, what's going on? Why are these, you know... These fights staged, and why do why don't they get on each other's nerves? I don't know. So, not regulated. That's on purpose. Entertainment rather than sports. So keep that in mind. Skill does not determine the outcome. So instead, writers will create a storyline well in advance, and every match is another chapter in that story. So winners and losers are determined by the script. Now, once if you are into wrestling, if you're maybe a wrestling connoisseur, or if you are a wrestler yourself, a pro wrestler, let me know if this is not accurate. However, this is kind of what I've accumulated through doing a little bit of research, just trying to figure out what pro wrestling is. And this is fascinating to me because this is truly not, I wouldn't say the word fake. That's a little harsh, but I think it's a little bit more, it's, it's just entertainment. It's staged. It's like going to... a a Broadway play or it's like going to a movie like you're going to see a staged story when you're going to see any of those and even a a concert you know for maybe a little less of a, a similarity but then again when you go to a concert the set list is already picked out it's already chosen there's already this expectation for what the performance is going to be and then this is just the cherry on top so just like acting for a movie, there's a lot of preparation that goes into wrestling, but the events that you see are not organically happening. So wrestlers aren't trying to hurt each other. Um, a lot of the storylines that they create publicly are not actually true. Like these these individuals, these athletes, do you call them athletes? Do you call them act? I don't know. Do you call them actors, athletes, entertainment, entertainers? I don't know. Whatever you call them, wrestlers, let's just call wrestlers they're actually friends with each other. Like a lot of these stories just are not true. They're kind of fabricated to add to the entertainment value. And yeah, I think that's kind of a unique thing. So I think the more that I've gotten into, or the more that I've learned about wrestling, the more this film became, I don't know, a little bit more heartfelt, a little bit more understanding. I think when I first saw this trailer, I was like, wait, Three pro wrestlers like this is an interesting biopic. I don't normally see biopic about wrestlers. You usually see it about, you know, singers or artists or athletes in like basketball or football. But seeing these, you know, this Von Erich family from pro wrestling, that was a little unique to me. So learning more about wrestling, learning more about the Von Erich family, which is fucking tragic. um, It it built a little bit more curiosity around the story. Also in the movie, Zac Efron, he does a great job comparing this sport to moving up in your career. That's actually what what prompted me to look up pro wrestling afterwards was his definition in the film um, where he describes this as going to a nine to five job and getting a promotion. And in order to continue moving up, you have to provide kind of proof that you are, you're willing to enhance your skills, you're willing to put in the time and effort. And I thought that was a unique comparison. So... This story is ruthless, it's devastating, and I don't like the word unbelievable. I think unbelievable is weird, and I think Matthew McConaughey is the one who actually kind of turned me off to that word, but this story is actually unbelievable. It's like when you watch this, you're, you're you're asking yourself, there's no way this happened. Like there's no way that like these events can continue to happen at the pace that they did. So the phrase that I was stuck with, and I put this in my written review, after I watched this film, was at what cost? You know, the tragedy itself splits into two parts of this story. So first, you have the events that pile up on top of each other. I won't dive into that. I'm not going to try to spoil everything that happened. But you have the physical events that, that are piling up. Complete tragedy. But then you have the family dynamic and the way that the family is being taught, the way that the family is being raised, their communication style with one another. And that's tragic in itself. So when you have these events happening, but you also have this family dynamic, this film just puts a deep rut in your stomach. And there's no sense of like uh, good feeling, I guess you could say, for the majority. There are some moments that that really show, like the chemistry between these actors as brothers, is incredible. Like they they truly, and you see it. I mean, Jeremy Allen White showed up to Zac Efron's uh, Hollywood uh, star ceremony. And he spoke, I believe he spoke. I I know he at least showed up there. And so you can tell that these actors are not only close to one another, but their chemistry in the movie as brothers definitely shows that. And then the way that this family dynamic kind of highlights a traditional methodology of raising a family in the 80s, I don't know if that's how it always was. I don't know if you watch this family and you're thinking, oh yeah, that's normal. That's how it was in the 80s. But in my mind, I'm like, if that's normal... Uh, scratch that. I don't. I don't want to be in the '80s. You know, I, I would watch Stranger Things and say, "Man, I wish I was in the '80s." Scratch that. Like, if that's the way that the family dynamic was, then it's not something I would be interested in. However, in this scenario and the uniqueness of, you know, the Von Erich family and the legacy that they're trying to create, and also, you know, living kind of in this this kind of open format where they're all about, hey, let's have everybody live together. Let's have all of us. No matter how old we are, we're gonna we're gonna stay connected for the rest of our lives. There's a certain traditional dynamic to that family situation that I, I just found tragic, but also just very interesting. Like you wanted to learn more about why they were acting the way that they were. So leading off of that, let's talk about the acting performances. Surprisingly, and I mentioned this at the beginning, this film had six focal characters that are separated. They're like, each character has their own unique sense of identity because of the great character writing. So I got to give my hats off to Sean Durkin because this this film could have easily acted as one collective figure. One collective acting performance, I guess you could say, because we see that. Anytime you watch, like, let's say Marvel, Fantastic Four, usually you're not looking at one of the, the actors for the Fantastic Four and saying, wow, they're doing such a good job. Usually those films are kind of positioned to be kind of all four of them together and all four of them are acting as one performance rather than each individual actor. So starting with Holt um, I believe this is the best performance of the entire film. There is a particularly dark tone that is only emphasized by his character's dynamic. He is so good in this movie. He's so intimidating. He's ruthless. He gives this brute-like performance that is a little bit symbolic of some other performances that I've seen from him. You know, when you watch Mindhunter, he's he's very compassionate, but he's also he's intimidating a little bit. And he has a good he has a good face for that intimidation. And he does a great job playing the father of the Von Erich family, the one who kind of sets the the precedence and the expectation and the legacy. And he's he's terrifying. So Holt McCallany did a phenomenal job. Harris Dickinson, who in my opinion, is overlooked. You know, I maybe this is a hot take, but I think he should be in the conversation with Timothy Chalamet or Jacob Elordi when it comes to kind of that natural expressiveness as an actor. You know, when you watch somebody like think about Wonka or Beautiful Boy or Dune or any of these films with Timothy Chalamet, he's just natural. He's just acting like a human being. There's not the stagey performance. And same thing with Jacob Elordi. You know, whether it's him portraying Elvis, which is a very stage-like performance, or even him portraying, um, I forgot the character's name, but in Saltburn, very different performances, but very naturally expressive. I just think there's a natural tone to those characters that I've seen from Harris Dickinson. I mean, his range of charm, the wit, the repulsiveness, and even the innocence that he's portrayed in different roles is completely underrated. So... I think that he should be considered in kind of that conversation of top young actors, um, and I think he's on the come up. You know, some of we we mentioned some of his films. Uh, I do believe Triangle of Sadness is a phenomenal film. It was in my top ten of 2022. I would check that one out. But he also did a good. He did a great job in The King's Man, and also some other roles that are a little bit more low key, rather than you know Jacob Elordi and Timothy Chalamet who are playing the the title characters in every film that they're in now. I feel like Harris Dickinson has that, that ability to truly kind of win over audiences. So Jeremy Allen White, wow, what a year he's had. Uh, isn't it crazy what one role will do for somebody, right? I mean, to my understanding, I've never seen Shameless, but he's been acting for years. I mean, 15, 20 years, and he's been in a show that was very well-known and and from what I understand, very beloved. But then along comes The Bear And all of a sudden, everything's blowing up, right? Like every, he's getting so many different opportunities now. He's been in, I believe, four films this year. Yeah, The Iron Claw, The Bear, Fingernails, and Fremont. Which, you know, to be complete, and The Bear is a TV show. So three films and and one TV series. You know, The Iron Claw and The Bear are definitely highlights. Fingernails is on Apple TV Plus. It's a little intriguing, but it's it's not necessarily my taste. And then I haven't seen Fremont yet. So one thing that I I thought it would be interesting is finding out, you know, some of these other actors who were experienced. They have been experienced, but it just took one role to like allow their marketability to pop off. You know, we have Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man. Can you name one film before Iron Man that he was in? Just period. I guess that's what I want to say. You know, can you name one film? In my mind, I can name two. I can name Zodiac, which I very much enjoyed. And that was the year before Iron Man, or or two years maybe. And then Chaplin, which 1992, he was very young. But he just wasn't known as an actor, at least before that time, you know, before Iron Man. And then after Iron Man, you know, came Sherlock Holmes. And then he obviously had all the different Iron Man and Avengers movies. And then he just recently was in Oppenheimer, which was a phenomenal performance. So I think Iron Man was that for Robert Downey Jr. He was already a big actor. He was already well known. He was already in a ton of roles. But on the marketability side, you know, becoming this well-known face that everybody knows, that was Iron Man. Christian Bale, one of the greatest actors of you know our generation, you know, that was The Dark Knight. You know, he was in The Prestige, which is which is my favorite film of all time. That came before The Dark Knight. Uh, I'm trying to think of other roles. Uh, He was in Newsies. He was in, uh, I believe it was Empire of the Sun or The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. I always get those two mixed up. But he was a credible actor. He was a great actor. He's been in a ton of projects. But lo and behold, you know, you get in this massive franchise, this massive IP such as Batman, and he just skyrockets. And now he's, you know, he's been in a ton of films. But I think Batman is that one that people will always remember him from the most, even though he's been in The Fighter, he's been in Vice, he's been kind of this body transformative actor in so many different scenarios. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio, Titanic was probably that big one for Leo, even though What's Eating Gilbert Grape is my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance. But I think Titanic kind of opened the doors that allowed him to start working with Martin Scorsese on some massive projects, and that allowed him to start working with Christopher Nolan and some other big filmmakers that just kind of propelled his career forward even recently with Michelle Yeoh in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, she is one of the greatest action stars probably in, in cinema history, but not many people knew about Michelle Yeoh until Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and same thing with Zendaya and Euphoria. Zendaya is a phenomenal actress, but I think Euphoria is that that one pivotal piece. So Jeremy Allen White, I'm very happy for him. I'm happy the bear kind of popped him off in this, market, this marketable sense and... I'm excited to see what he does. He has a couple projects on his list, um, but I think this was kind of his massive year. And then we have Zach Efron, who is definitely the most experienced out of the young cast. And so my question is, why why isn't he more acclaimed? Like, why why isn't he finding more films like this, which is kind of this... I, I don't know if this makes sense, but when you watch a film, you can kind of sense whether that film is going to have maybe some acclamation, some award conversation around it, or if it's just going to be a fun, you know, movie or a fun project or something like High School Musical or Greatest Showman, great performance, fun movie. But why isn't he more acclaimed? You know, when you think of the acting credits that the young cast has, so Zac Efron has 67 acting credits, Jeremy Allen White has 27 acting credits, and Harris Dickinson has 25 acting credits. So nearly tripling their acting credits, but he's not the one that's in conversation for any awards, whether that's you know an Emmy Award or whether that's an Oscar. He's the one who's kind of in conversation for the fun movies, like the lighthearted movies. But at the end of the day, he can sing, he can dance, he's done romance films, he's done dramas, comedies. Uh, my personal thought is that he needs to find different filmmakers to work with. Ones who will kind of provoke that that genuine acting talent. I mean, look at Sean Durkin. I don't know Sean Durkin. It looks like he was able to provoke that out of Zac Efron. But even any of these other ones who are kind of known for their style of writing, like known for writing specifically and not for that rah-rah, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, that's a great choice. So I think he needs to work with different filmmakers. He does a really, really, really good job in this film. All three of them do. The entire chemistry is great. I do think the best performance goes to Holt McColony because he's incredibly intimidating. And I'm grateful that he gave a performance like that, that complemented the the tone that this film was really going for. Uh, The wrestling scenes look great. Uh, Look, there's plenty of different examples in recent history of wrestling or boxing movies that just don't look good. I mean, Rocky Balboa in 2006, along with Creed 3, actually, as you know, this year, where... You could see the CGI crowd and the animation and it feels very cheesy and there's no fluid nature where in this one, you know, the arena slash stadium, it doesn't look blatantly fake. The choreography is fluid. Uh, There were some hiccups there with the the Ric Flair character. Um, (laughs) It didn't really work for me, but that's okay. That didn't really go into kind of the the environment and the audience. You know, they had these these shots that were taken from far away where they're showing not only the audience around, but also the ring and them throwing each other out of the ring. And it kind of created this this very confident scale of filmmaking because usually when you're watching like Creed, you know, or Creed 3, they're in the ring and they're fighting, but there's there's this sense of like everything around them is fake. And it's just Michael B. Jordan who and whoever the other character is in the film fighting in this ring Whereas when you're watching this film, it feels like not only do you have the wrestlers in the ring, but you have the audience right around them, and they're a part of the ring. They're a part of that story, and they kind of add to that level of intensity, and I really enjoyed that. I mean, the film is gorgeous. It's deeply emotional. There's one particular scene toward the conclusion of the film, and I won't give it away, but that scene could have gone very wrong. The Just the type of scene that they're doing, it could have gone very wrong. It could have been very... Overdramatized and cheesy and you could have just been like you could have been left feeling a little bit like Oh, this is the way that they're gonna kind of close this out. However, it was executed perfectly It was it was done so well. It was it was touching. It was charming um, Wow, yeah, I'm thinking about sitting in the theater after All of these events happening and then you get this scene that is very much that one emotional very pivotal moment that you needed and it was just, it was really well done. So the emotions and the actions, it all felt authentic. And and honestly, even off-putting at times because of how authentic it felt. So this is a good film. I would say this is a top 20 film of 2023. I didn't expect it to be, you know, I expected myself to like it. But, you know, my rating for this film is a four out of five. I did, once again, like I mentioned, I did a written review, which is on Letterboxd. So check this film out. I mean, I think there's a lot to take from it, whether you relate to the Zac Efron character, you know, whether you relate to Lily James, who plays a pivotal character in kind of keeping Zac Efron and and his character on a certain path, on a certain trajectory. And from what they're portraying, if she was not involved in this story, in this livelihood of the Von Erich family, things could have gone tragically different. And so... She did a great job. Uh, just a great cast. I think the cast is the focal point. But the film's gorgeous. It's authentic. It's it's dark. So please go in there with the right expectations, whether you're watching it at home or whether you're watching it in theaters. Uh, some last thoughts. You know, this is another A24 product. I wanted to bring this up again because in 2023, here are some of the A24 films that have been released. So you have The Iron Claw, Dream Scenario with Nicolas Cage, which is hilarious, Priscilla, Priscilla, so that was a Sofia Coppola film about Priscilla Presley. You um, had Talk to Me, in my opinion, the best horror film of the year. You had Past Lives, which is number two on my best films list of the year. Uh, you Hurt My Feelings, which is a very heartfelt, true romance film as well. Um, regarded as one of the better films of the year, you know, in addition to Past Lives as another romance option. And then even Bo is Afraid, you know, the Ari Aster kind of complicated comedy that he created. So... I guess my question with not only the Iron Claw, but A24 is A24 becoming a familiar name to everybody or just film, you know, avid film goers. Because to me, when I see A24, I'm like, got it, booked. I'm going. Yeah, I'm there. Because they've proven that they trust the filmmakers and not, you know, the studio heads giving all the the constructive feedback. Because, you know, you have films like Bo's Afraid, which I did not enjoy. But you can see in that film that this is Ari Aster doing exactly what Ari Aster wants to do. Just like in The Iron Claw, you're, see, you're seeing Sean Durkin doing exactly what Sean Durkin wants to do. So is A24 a familiar name? You know, is that something that does compel audiences outside of avid film goers to go see a certain film? And if it is, props to them. They're a great company, a great distribution company. And I think that they're only getting bigger. They're only getting better. And so I'm excited to see if some of these films win some Oscars or other awards, or at least if they're um, nominated and recognized for the talent that each one of these filmmakers provided. So my movie recommendation from this past week of movies, and even the past two weeks of movies, I would say The Iron Claw. This is the best movie that I saw this past week. I've, you know, we watched Ferrari last night, a buddy of mine, and He was like, wow, after watching a film like Ferrari, which wasn't absolutely terrible, but after watching a film that that was a little bland, you know, it was a little, you know, just slow. It didn't really captivate my my emotions. It didn't captivate me in any storytelling. You know, he said to me, he's like, you know, I think I need to go watch a weird film, an absolutely abstract film. And even said to me, he's like, I think I might just go see the Iron Claw or something. So if you need a good film, if you need something to move you, if you need something to provoke some emotion, this is the one. So that's my review on The Iron Claw. I'm excited for award season around the corner. I'm excited to watch more films. I've been trying to catch up on, I, I have this list on the side here of all the movies I still need to see. Um, I have The Zone of Interest, Anatomy of a Fall, Origin, and Poor Things. Oh, and The Color Purple. That just came out as well. So a lot of films on my list. I'll try to get through them as quickly as I can. But for everybody joining, thank you. I can't thank you guys enough. I mean, it's it's already motivating enough to get into the spot, you know, to put together this, this episode each and every time. But to know that somebody's on the other end and to hear from you guys, it's incredible. So thank you so much for listening. Um, go watch movies. Share with friends who love movies. Um, message me if you have movie recommendations. I'll do my best to watch them. Uh, when time does free up, I like to try to watch recommendations that are shared with me. But I appreciate you tuning in and thank you for listening. I'll chat with you guys next time. Peace.